The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Mind, Brain, and Body with Dr. Michael John Kell. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now helping you live a more productive and fulfilling life, Dr. Michael John Kell. Hey, good morning, you all. Uh, I hope you have uh, had a nice week, and you'll have an even better week ahead, which obviously is under a lot more of your control, or at least your guidance, I should say, is a much better word than sometimes we realize. Uh, today, we're going back to our nutritional series, basically a holistic medicine series, and we're going to be talking to uh, Nora Gagoutis. Mm-hmm. Was that good? Was that good? Yeah, you, you did it. I'm <laughs> impressed. Miracle. And in the morning time, and we're going to be talking about a book that's actually um, a revised copy, an expanded edition of something that's called uh, Primal Body, Primal Mind, uh, Empower, Empower Your Total Health the Way Evolution Intended. And it says, and didn't, which I don't know if that refers to human messing around or not, but it probably, maybe it does, but we're going to find out anyway. But uh, Nora's been dealing with nutrition diet for like 25 years. She's a Nutritional Therapy Association certifi- certified lady, and uh, see, she also holds the National Board Certification Holistic Nutrition, the National Association of Nutritional Professionals, and, a <laughs> and uh, she's also, uh, the reason I sort of got to be introduced to you is because of your neurofeedback uh, work. Yeah. Which I'm so, so obviously sort of been interested in. And actually, we've talked about quite a few people, about maybe three or four actually about neurofeedback and different ways to do it, which has been quite quite interesting. But today we're going to talk about nutrition. I am extremely biased to evolutionary psychology and evolutionary uh, development in general because at least it has some logic to it. Yeah, bravo. And uh, and plus what it requires to do it is, I'm sure we're going to learn from you, is in order to be an evolutionary guy, you sort of got to start eliminating a lot of junk. You can't eliminate any more, and then we can talk. So uh, let's just talk about, you know, I don't, you know, like I said before, you know, we, we go where you want to go because the show's purpose is really to, you know, take people who seem to have discovered something about life that's useful for the rest of us and have them talk about it and give us a better appreciation for why this is something that's important for all of us to look into. Even if we don't always do a perfect job at it, at least we can make some honest attempts. So I guess we can always start with diet, since that seems to be such a gigantically loaded word in our society. Oh, boy, I can't think of anything more um, more loaded subject. I mean, there's, there's no more, uh, I think, emotional uh, topic with <clears throat> more varied points of view. I mean, even worse than politics, probably as if it's possible to be worse than politics. But uh, as a matter of fact, there there's a lot of politics wrapped up in diet as well. But, but I, first, I just want to thank you, uh, Michael, for in, inviting me onto your show. Uh, you have to get up pretty early in the morning to be on the show, but it's uh, it's worth it, I think. So hey, it's uh, not so thank you. A friend of mine, Jacob Teitelbaum, you know, big, big, uh, you know, conquer seed guy, uh-huh. he has to get up in Hawaii for the show. And he comes oh, on, like, for crying out loud. Well, <laughs> so what am I complaining about, right? I'm in Portland. Sometimes I have to get up really early or really late to make the shows when I'm traveling. So, 
But in any case, time is just relevant. You know, our time right now is the same time. Just clocks different. It sure is. So uh, we would tune the best we can. Yes. So, so what? I mean, if you, so let's just start with you know how you look at you know like what our proper diet probably should be for the majority of say people in the Western world, say in America, say in Oregon, Oregon or say in Portland, wherever. Yeah, I mean, I'm in Portland. So uh, it's a rainy place. I've been in Portland before. Yeah, it's a great place. You know. It's off the subject, but no, <laughs> a little bit. But when I was in states for a few days in Portland, because I had to do a talk at the, you know at that university, whatever Portland University, Portland, or whatever university is there, uh huh, in the street, you know, by star past Starbucks. But I was uh-huh. surprised actually how many uh, narcotics users live in Portland. Cause I swear there's that because I swear I was walking by, I'm going, I know that's a methadone clinic. I can just feel it because I have a lot of experience with them. Right. You know, from you know, in, in therapy, and not my therapy, but working with them and stuff. And I'm going, oh, this is an interesting place. A bunch of old burned out hippies from. Days. Yeah, well, <clears throat> yeah, the meth is, uh, is is a definitely significant problem in the Pacific Northwest. I I, I can't help but venture uh, a theory that it may have something in part to do with the weather up here. Um, for the same reason that there's a Starbucks. I mean, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a Starbucks or some mom and pop coffee shop around here either. In fact, the Pacific Northwest is the home of Starbucks. So, um, you know, when you have lots of gloomy weather. Um, you know, people are struggling with, uh, you know, serotonin issues and, and, and all that kind of stuff and seasonal affective kinds of things and they're looking for that pick-me-up, which, you know, uh, you know, blood sugar issues are rampant out, out here too and vitamin D deficiency and, you know, we got a lot of good things going for us. I guess we could say then, if we apply this to diet, I guess we could, that, uh, I mean, really there is a lot of, uh, social structuring around how we perceive what we should eat, what we don't, what we do eat, how that affects our bodies, uh, minds, etc. You know, yeah, I think it has <clears throat> a lot of it has to do with um, you know some ideas that got going. There, there were ideas in the uh, you know early 1900s, mid 19, you know, early to mid 1900s that somebody had the idea that uh, a theory that 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 the, the issue of overweight and, and buildup of unhealthy lipids in the arteries and whatever might have to do with dietary fat. And it wasn't an unreasonable hypothesis, but it was one that um, kind of took off and, and uh, the, of course, the vegetable oil industry and the food industry was also kind of uh, coming on strong at that time, the industrialization of the food supply. And... Uh, Corporate interests took uh, took advantage, I think, of, of what was a, theor- a theoretical model, and basically structured it to their own, adapted it to their own uh, for their own sort of nefarious purposes. Which actually and, may not have been nefarious at the time. I always like, to, I mean, I'm saying they weren't, but yes, yes. Sometimes people, because of lack of knowledge, we you know we pick a, we pick a path to go down, and it's not always because yeah, evil. The, the intentions may not have all been evil at the time, but they become. Yeah. Right, right, right. But, you know, so the theory, although never proven, has taken root in uh, in our medical system, in our, uh, you know, in the media, and there's a pervasive sort of mythology around the whole dietary heart hypothesis and the lipid hypothesis, and it really doesn't stand up uh, to scientific scrutiny um, and doesn't stand up to... You know, the studies just don't stand up, even the, the Framingham study. Um, and um, it, it's, it's one of those things that, that 
just won't die, though. And unfortunately, because of it, there are a lot of people that 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 have died, <laughs> um, wasting their wasting their energy trying to address um, a non-issue. Address a non-issue, yeah, and avoiding you know the real issues. And uh, it's 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 one of those things that just uh, that just doesn't seem to go away. Yeah, but it's, it's certainly sad. true that you know, and of course, being an evolutionary guy, you know that dietary, you know, fat and uh, saturated fat and cholesterol have uh, have been around a very, very, very long time, and um, uh, pretty much for as long as we've been around, uh, these dietary uh, actually longer than we've been around. <laughs> well, longer than we've been around, but I mean, they've been around in terms of our yeah. dietary inclusions. Uh, and of course, it, they didn't all of a sudden. I mean, if you graduated medical school in 1910, you never heard of something called coronary thrombosis. I think the first four cases of coronary thrombosis and you know, heart attack were actually recorded in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1911. And they thought it was this weird, anomalous condition, and it was a it was a medical curiosity at that time. And uh, Dr. Paul Dudley White, who was personal physician to President Eisenhower. Um, at that time, you know, he was fascinated with all of this and decided to specialize in in uh, this new field of something called heart disease. And his colleagues thought he was nuts. They said, why would you waste your time and your talent on something so unprofitable? <laughs> and, of course, by the 1950s, there it was, the primary cause of death. So it's not like all of a sudden that saturated fat and cholesterol uh, became a, a problem. You know, Dr. Mary Enig, um, you know, said that, um, and I have her quote here, that the idea that saturated fats cause heart disease is completely wrong. Oh, by the way, Dr. Mary Enig, she's arguably, she's a bench chemist uh, of more than 50 years specializing in um, dietary fats and, and human health, um, arguably the world's foremost scientific expert. And uh, she says that, you know, the idea that saturated fats cause heart disease is completely wrong. But the statement has been, quote, published so many times over the last three or more decades that it's very difficult to convince people otherwise unless they are willing to take the time to read and learn what produced the anti-saturated fat agenda. So, Even as, because, I mean, we all tend, I mean, society teaches us to tend to, you know, tend to overgeneralize our terms. Yeah. You know, and so, but even if you're going to say, well, okay, I mean, that may have some contribution, but it only is like C14s and C16s, if I remember right, anyway. Yeah. You know, so so even in saturated fats, it's only like two of them that may be problematic in excess. Um, well, and here's the deal. I mean, it's, that's only you know, two out of all, a bunch of them. So well, you know, to say it's all saturated fat would be well, and it's all relative. I mean, yeah. and um, <clears throat> and people lump fat together as just being one thing when it's an exceedingly complex array of very diverse compounds that actually may behave completely differently in the body, may be absorbed differently, digested, utilized completely differently, and they all. I, you know, the way I view it, that all natural, naturally occurring fats have a role to play um, in our health. Um, and where fats become problematic is when they become, uh, when they're artificial. In other words, they just, they don't really exist in nature, but you know, they've been produced in a test tube, such as the, you know, uh, hydrogenated fats, the trans fats. Um, or they're, you know, rancid, um, oxidized. And of course, or we get disproportionate amounts of certain uh, fats that uh, that would not have been uh, naturally that abundant in our you know during our 
in our evolutionary diets, our earlier evolutionary diets, like the omega-6s that are so overly represented in, in, in uh, the vegetable oils. Um, our ancestors certainly never would have thought to crush a, a seed and squeeze the oil out of it and then throw that in a frying pan and cook something in it. Um, they just ate the seed if they were going to eat the seed. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, even where you're talking about saturated fats, saturated fats, you can't generalize them because they're short-chain, medium-chain, long-chain fats. Um, you know, the most saturated fat there is, 18-carbon uh, stearic acid, is actually the preferred fuel for the human heart. You know, let's talk about fat being bad for the heart. It's, um, it's essential for the heart, and it's essential for your muscles, and it's essential for your brain, and it's essential for your hormones, and um, essential for so many aspects of our functioning that to restrict them or, or reduce them or, God forbid, eliminate them, if, you know, um, you basically amounts to genocide. It's, 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 you know, when, when you have people trying to do this, restrict fats in, in children in particular who have developing brains and developing nervous systems. And um, it, it's, it's, I, I think it's, it's downright uh, criminal. I always tell patients, I mean, when I used to do longevity medicine too, after a while ago. Now, some things I think I have pretty good understanding, like, why you should do A and B and C. Sure. But mostly, you know, but that's just like, it's an initial understanding. There may be other factors that we haven't discovered yet, so I may have to change my point of view next week, which may or may not change what I rec- your recommendations. But one thing I always tell people, I said, you know, one thing I can say, though, is I think science has done a pretty good job of uncovering what your body needs to function well. Yeah. Now, there's obviously some things we don't know about, so it's better to have, you know, take a, eat a whole olive than just to have olive oil. Right. You know, in general, because there might be some things we don't know about that we need. So we can always make sure you get what you, what we think you need in sufficient doses. And you know, and I cannot tell me, and probably everything I ever do for you is making sure that you start eating what your body probably needs. Best I know, right? All my research, yeah, it's probably the nicest thing I'll ever do for you, the most beneficial. Yes. But it's going to affect everything beneficially, so it's hard to your finger on what happened. But I want to say one thing, though, because uh, one of my favorite early med- uh, doctors is, is Broda Bar- you know, was Broda Barnes. Sure, yeah. And I remember reading one of his books when he was at the, uh, I guess it was the Illinois Institute of Technology, but it was like Armour had, I don't know if that's, I may be you know, not remembering totally, but Armour had an institute there or else where your University of Illinois Armour Institute, whatever it was, but it was like in the early 1900s. Yeah. And so uh, he went to the farms, and you probably know this, but a lot of people don't know this, and went, you know, went to the farms and got bunch of fat people, and he brought them back to his metabolic ward, you know, and he's, you know, just regular old country people from the farms, and so he did, you know, did, did a, uh, you know, uh, like, what do you like, what do you eat, what don't you like to eat, what are you afraid to eat, you know, kind of thing, and and what he found was when he asked people, because it's a little folk psychology, you know, it's like fat people, fat people would try not to eat as fat, I mean, just inherently. Yeah. It's probably because they think, well, fat here, fat food, you know, it's right, related, right. not really related, just seems to be related in folk psychology. And, and so they were really careful trying to pick out what wasn't fatty, but they just had a ton of carbs right? in sweets, as you know. And so when he put them back on, you know, so he changed their diet over to, which would be much more sound evolutionary diet, which was higher in fat, lower in carbs, you know, no sugars, and, I mean, right? you know, and, good, and a good source of protein, which was meat, by the way, and dairy. You know, right. use like all these things that they say are bad. And now the people that were there lost weight, and, the, and we went back and talked to them, the people... Continue to watch the carbs. Yes, you know, and try to eat just you know regular farm food. Actually, maintain their weight loss. I mean, they probably got a little bit chubbier because some people just run chubby. 
Well, you know, you know, they know that like 100 years ago. We knew 180 years ago. I mean, the answers were sitting right in front of the scientists that this theory cannot be right. It's folk psychology. Yeah. You know, but I think folk psychology is extremely hard to extinguish <laughs> because it seems such a natural thing to us that, you, that if you're fat, you must eat in too much fat. Well, and yeah, and that idea was again, you know, introduced by you know people like Ansel Keys and and, and whatnot way back when, and um, and as we know, there was a lot of research um, that was that was twisted to fit a hypothesis um, for issues of, as uh, George Mann said, pride, profit, or prejudice. Um, but um, you know the uh, you know perhaps counterintuitively, uh, you know. Dr. William Castelli, uh, you know, who was one of the, uh, he was actually the director of the uh, sort of landmark Framingham study um, from the Archives of Internal Medicine. I have this quote. He said, in Framingham, Massachusetts, the more saturated fat one ate, the more cholesterol one ate, the more calories one ate, the lower people serum cholesterol. We found that the people who ate the most cholesterol, ate the most saturated fat, ate the most calories, weighed the least, and were the most physically active, <laughs> you know. But, of course, that's not it, it, what got publicized. Or, you know, we don't, we, anyway, science doesn't care about facts sometimes. Or well, <laughs> no, the facts are commonly, commonly twisted to fit. Um, you know, they, they say there are lies and damn lies, and then there are statistics um, that are commonly manipulated in order to fit a certain agenda, and... Uh, unfortunately, they, uh, you know, there are billions of dollars in, in the food industry invested toward the support of the dietary heart hypothesis. There are billions of dollars in medicine, billions of dollars in, in pharmacology or in the pharmaceutical industry, um, and um, and also in government agencies, you know, like the Heart Association and, and various other organizations that depend on whose funding uh, depends upon. Um, Maintaining that perception that that hypothesis is is correct, and uh, it's 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 been very very uh, costly to us as a society. It obviously hasn't uh, done very much to lessen um, the obesity problem, or heart disease, or cancer, or diabetes, or much of anything else. And the idea that people are still pointing their finger at fat and cholesterol after you know, close to 100 years now of anti-saturated fat agenda. Um, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. Yeah, the sad part I find is, is that, I mean, if you look at how good, how, how good the biochemists really are nowadays, you know, relative yeah. to 50 years ago, you know, you know, and as you and I well know, you know I mean, you know, and they, 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 the industry maintains the scientists to maintain the policy to maintain the health, but really it's about shelf life. You know, yes. And, and if you make, the, in, the, in the least, the less, Useful stuff in it, the longer it lasts. But my point, what I was going to say is, is that it's not so hard for them to like stabilize things, you know, with antioxidants that are safe, okay, or pack things in nitrogen, right? So there's no oxygen around to oxidize, right? The thing in the amber bottles, you know, whether plastic, sometimes it's okay, maybe it should be glass, but you know, there was something you have to compromise here somewhere, you right. know. And, and so my guess is, is that actually technology, if that technology does exist, they could actually produce much healthier oils. Package them in a way that the you know shelf life would be fine. Mm-hmm. And you know, but, but the problem is once they you open that one out yet, you know yeah. that part they haven't gone. Oh yeah, we can still make money. We just switch to a higher. I go switch to a higher quality product that you can make more profit on. It's healthy for people. Stabilize it. 
See, and then you're making as maximum amount of money you want, which is all you care about, but you don't hurt your client. Because why would we want to kill off our customers? It's like stupid. Well, but yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, not to be overly conspiratorially minded, but I think that the bottom line is always the bottom line, you know. Um, and the bottom line is is ultimately when it when it comes to food industry or whatever, it, it's profit. Um, they don't necessarily. I mean, food isn't, you know, for instance. Um, Food isn't necessarily uh, grown with the thought toward making it the most nutritious possible. It's grown um, to be the most sellable uh, and to be or the most flavorful. Uh, well, not even the most flavorful. No, they, flavorful. They, 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 if they can get it to look good on the shelf, yeah. then then they've they've done their job as far as they're concerned. Or if they can make it taste good uh, by adding MSG or by um, manipulating in some way, adding extra sugar or, uh, or whatever chemicals that they uh, that they want to add, high fructose corn syrup, whatever. Um, then, then that's what they're going to do. If you know, they're listening to the consumers. We're the we actually have quite a bit more power than than we uh, oftentimes give ourselves credit for. But it's um, but there's uh, the the first step, of course, is is being aware of of why you should want to buy a food, a certain food, <laughs> and why you might want to avoid a certain food. And unfortunately, that information just isn't out there, and you're not likely to hear about it on the Today Show um, or any other television media uh, program uh, because, of course, you know, food and pharmaceutical industries advertise on those programs, and, and you can't overly conflict with, with their agendas. I mean, I've noticed, I don't know about in Oregon, Oregon, but it should be more than here. But uh, I was nice to. I uh, actually I've talked about the you know the, the Cargiles and the Dreyfus Company and whoever else is there these days. You know these these these, these true vertical monopolies that control the whole agriculture in the United States. Sure, they can't control all the beef because the cowboys don't let them control it as much. So they control certain levels, but they have a true vertical monopoly from the producer to the seller. Yeah, which is like really good for anybody else because you know, if I make the price at my final sale, I don't care if I lose money at the first sale, but. You know, actually, you know, going over them and talking, you know, not to them and about <laughs> them and stuff is that uh, the one part they didn't really, have, they, did, they really apparently haven't infiltrated very good because it looks really bad is like the sellers, like the supermarkets. Uh huh. You know, Safeway and these big major chains, they seem to be somewhat independent, at least on the surface, best I can tell from the, you know, the, the Cargillo uh, vertical monopolies mm -hmm. you know, and the Dreyfus ones. And, and what I've noticed is, which is a good sign, is that like I have Kroger's, you know, in Georgia, Atlanta. Yes. You know, which I think comes out of Ohio or Cincinnati somewhere. So I don't know if they have that out there. But I've noticed, and there's Publix here too, and I've noticed that Kroger's actually has these, you know, it's trying to bring out more and more organically certified products, whether it's oatmeal. Yeah. Because there's a demand for it at the customer level. And so at least the supermarkets are starting to, I think, the first people that are, are actually saying, well, yeah, people buy this. Right. Again, so, they're paying, they're, they are paying attention. There is an increased demand for these things. Yeah, we, uh, Kroger owns a, <clears throat> a chain out here in, in Oregon called, uh, Fred Meyer. And, and so, yeah. So we out here call, call them Freddy's, but. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was like happy when I saw it. I'm going, yes. Like right, and it, for instance, when, when stores like Whole Foods opened up, I mean, yes, of course, you know, another corporation, whatever, um, there were there were people um, who were, uh, you know, upset about the corporate takeover of organic food, but, I mean, I tried to look on the bright side and say, well, at least corporations are taking an interest in sustainable agriculture, and uh, I see that as an inherently good thing. Um, Those are guys who survive. Yeah, but but of course the the whole or, or you know the the laws 
governing organics and whatever have been so weakened um, because, of course, as the demand for organics goes up, uh, the demand by uh, people growing food and whatever also goes up for make for relaxing those standards so that they can get on, get in on the gravy too. So the organic standards have been weakened pretty substantially in, in recent years, which has sort of now brought me to a place of being you know less trust less and less trustful of of the term organic. And now and nowadays, you know, locally grown has sort of become the new organic. Um, on the marketplace, and um, I, I tend to buy most of my produce uh, where I can at farmers markets and uh, local, these small you know co-ops and places that are really, really, truly dedicated to the production of, of real food in, um, in 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 quality ways that um, you know organic and biodynamic and um, and all of that. And, uh, you know, more and more I'm, I'm leaning toward just trying to get in on CSAs and uh, support the local farmer, go out to your farm, see where your food comes from, understand how it's being grown uh, to the extent that you can. I mean, up until fairly recent times, most people had at least one person in, in their family that, that lived on a farm someplace. I mean, we're, uh, you know, nowadays we're so far removed from our natural environment that we just don't have a first-hand knowing of where our food comes from anymore. And I, I think that's one of the factors, these sort of factors in terms of evolutionary health that um, that gets overlooked a lot of times. Now, I, I've had the opportunity. I, I don't hunt, but I've been with people who did, and, and I've had the opportunity to look in the eye, for instance, of of something that ended up on my dinner plate later. And I'm, I can tell you that it's an extremely different experience um, than buying something shrink wrapped in the store, yeah. <clears throat> or slamming something, you know, you know, grabbing that quick bite, you know, out of the fridge or whatever when you're heading off to work. Um, you take it in very differently, and you, 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 uh, it, I, I, I suspect that your body probably even processes it very differently. Um, because it is such a different experience. Um, but when I look at what the nutritional requirements are that we have, to me it makes the most sense to take a look at what the selective pressures were that shaped our physiology, that shaped those nutritional requirements over about 2.6 million years. And I think the closer we can come to replicating what would have been a natural diet for us throughout that time period, the better off we're likely to be. And, and I think that the more that a person maybe has wrong with them uh, the, in terms of their physical health, in terms of their mental health, psychological, whatever, emotional, um, in my opinion, the further back you need to go along evolutionary um, lines in terms of diet, you know, to, to really address the problem. Actually, when, actually, the reason I do this show, like it's been five years now, I don't know if it's slightly more, one month or less, I know it's more, at least equal to five, maybe more now. But uh, the other actually when we talk about hypnosis. Yeah. But actually, but I actually didn't talk about hypnosis for a long time. I actually went back and uh, I used to take at least take a whole week of my full time to do a show. Uh huh. You know, because I was and I did like sixteen week show on man's evolution and what he ate or she ate. Okay, what they ate. Yeah. And you know, and the reason it took a week's worth of time is so I had to go to the you know medical library and the regular you know. Library and start taught myself anthropology and teeth, you know, anatomy and everything. 
Mm-hmm. I could actually start and say, okay, this, you know, you already have this, you have to have this, blah, 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 you know, like chimpanzees and, you know, orangutans, all these cross things. And, uh, and, and, and there's two interesting things I discovered doing that. And uh, unfortunately, they have to, for some reason, they're not on our archives. I don't know why, but I got, I got CDs, so I guess I can get them on there. But the thing I learned is, one, that if you look at all the data is out there, you know, cross-culturally, you know, and you kind of exclude, like, the people that would be really, really far north of the Arctic. Mm-hmm. That's kind of an outlier, I mean, for, for this part. And, uh, you know, far in the south or some, live in some weird island somewhere that's, like, totally different than any place else. Is what I found was that when you look in, you know, looking at all those, the guy's book, it is, but you know, it looks at all the you know the uh, indigenous cultures and what they ate and what they do, and there's a lot of data out there. And it turns out that if you look at they got the extremes and looked at what what where people got their their energy from, mm-hmm. you know, and it was basically almost most places in the world because most people live by you know by a river, or lake, or ocean in the old days, not all of them, but there was like one third was from uh, the you know basically like was like from the fishing. Mm-hmm. Gathering from the ocean, or the yep. river, or whatever. One third was hunted meat, and one third is everything else, which is basically tubers, seeds, and fruits, because they didn't really have vegetables in those days. You know, like they didn't eat leaves and stuff. They ate tubers. And um, so, when you start going back and look at how much protein it was, it's like it was like about you know thirty-five to forty-five percent protein diet. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and the fat was like you know it was like forty, you know, it was like thirty percent, forty percent, fifty percent. It kind of varied with the protein. But the carbohydrates was like 20%, you know, in general. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so it really does turn out that we really are protein-fat creatures, naturally, like you mentioned in the beginning. But what I found was other interesting on our side was is that I came across uh, you know, Western Price's work in the sure. 30s. And I think he was a genius of a genius. Yeah, he sure was. And uh, his wife must have been a genius, too, but isn't much what she did, but she right. a genius, too. Well, you know, but, behind every man is a, no, she made a lot of more, man. I mean, they made a lot of discovery about vitamins that people don't give them credit for, you know, because they didn't have a name or whatever. But mm-hmm. what was interesting, too, is what I did find is, is that what his point was, as you know, is that actually all animals have a natural, you know, if they're going to survive in the area for a long time, the ones that survived had to be the ones that figured out what is, the, what is, the, is at least a sufficiently healthy diet. You know, not to be get to be tuberculosis, not to die. You know, not to have tooth problems and things. And so, what the interesting part was that, yeah, even evolutionary, the sort of basic diet is the humans' are, the capacity to to adapt is pretty strong as long as we have a source where there's enough vitamins and minerals and things. But there's enough protein, there's enough fat, and not too much carbs. Right. And, you know, and so you can have these really strange diets, but if they're evolutionary sound, they've been around for thousands of years in certain areas. Right. And you actually come from that area, it's probably a good, healthy diet for you. All right. Well, it's uh, the whole key is that sort of nutrient density kind of a thing. And one of the things, you know, the Western Price certainly also found throughout, I mean, of course, there were an extremely diverse array of cultures that he studied all over the world. He traveled over 100,000 miles over 10 years and spent time with the Aborigines in Australia and in remote Celtic islands and these and the remote Lotional Valley in Switzerland. And, I mean, he just, he was everywhere, Africa. But one thing that he found consistent among this incredibly diverse array of diets was was a particularly um, uh, pronounced reverence for uh, fat for basically fats in in the diet the, the fat rich foods and uh, he found consistently that all of these cultures consumed as many 
uh, animal source foods as were available uh, to them. He was unable to find any um, any you know vegetarian cultures anywhere. He looked hard for that, and he was actually quite disappointed not to find one. Um, but he did find that fat-soluble nutrients were um, a consistent factor in all of these a rich uh, supply of fat soluble nutrients were a consistent factor and that the richer that those uh, nutrients were in these cultures typically the healthier they were and of course the more varied the nutrients were um you know where they were able to get a complex of of, of nutrients from both land and sea they they did better but you know we're going to consume we're omnivores and and we're opportunists we're going to eat whatever we can in terms of uh, what's available. And if our ancestors evolved in a particular area, then we may be on some level a little better suited to those kinds of foods um, and may have higher requirements for some of those uh, nutrients, like people in northern climates uh, whose ancestors came from more northern climates and, and Celtic Isles and whatever are going to have um, or more, or, or maybe have more primitive roots. Say you have a Native Native American background, your requirement for omega threes is, for instance, going to be much higher than you know somebody who um, you know may come from South America or something like that. So um, those things are also uh, things to factor in, I guess, in, into the equation. It actually makes me think something else is. Uh, I think it's called molinut. I might be. I'm probably wrong in the name. I remember one of the first things that came out on an evolutionary diet. They 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 went and studied the Bushmen, yeah. Which actually was a really bad idea in terms of evolutionary diets because they have a unique diet because they have this nut that's really high, you know, high calorie, high protein, not high protein, but high fat with probably a lot of nutrients in it. Uh huh. You know, so it provides a lot of their calories, and, and so they don't really, have, you know, and I guess they don't fish, so they don't have to hunt as much, but they do hunt. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so I mean, this one study based on this one sort of outlier part of the area. Most places don't have access to this high-quality fat in this quantity. They did, uh, you know. They, they go on and say, "Oh no, we're we're supposed to have a high protein, you know, a low-protein diet, a higher carbohydrate, and a higher fat diet." Uh huh. Because they can't really say fat, you know. Right. And how sometimes the studies, because they're not done in context with the rest of the world, you know, the authors don't make a point to say, "Well, this may be not. This is probably an outlier culture." Right. Look how adaptable humans are. Right. And, you know, then the companies focus on the studies that are useful for their point of view. Whatever that wouldn't be particularly useful one for fat, but uh, then they get misled. So it's a tricky place. It is, you know. Everybody always tries to extrapolate. I know there was um, uh, they they had found a, a culture, I believe it was in Africa, that that um, seemed to have a particularly low rate, for instance, of colon cancer, and uh, so they're sort of, you know, looking to try to figure out why that might be, and they found, oh, would you look at this? They they eat a lot of, you know, fibrous material, and it, and they concluded based on that that it must fiber must be the, uh, you know, the the factor, and of course that's another myth that's persisted, and most people aren't aware of the fact that the whole fiber theory of preventing colon cancer has long since been disproven by the you know Harvard nurses study. Um, there is literally a zero correlation between you know dietary fiber and incidence of colon cancer, but it, that's another myth that sort of. Uh, persists. At least, you know, the good thing about fiber is that it doesn't turn into sugar, so, you know, it, it's okay, but although I think in excess, too, fiber can be problematic because it will tend to bind minerals and make them unavailable. So, um, um, but, 
but it, you know, the, the tendency is to focus in on one thing and without, of course, taking into account all the other things that may be factoring into the equation. Um, one concern that I have, too, with, with all the uh, scientific research of what specific nutrients do, for instance, um, like all the hype about vitamin D, which is one you know, chapter in my book, um, that the unfortunate tendency in science is to want to isolate a nutrient and uh, you know, try to exclude all of the other uh, potential factors in order to determine specifically what that nutrient does. You know? So they, they, they try to eliminate as many variables as they can to do these studies, but, you know, life is a variable, <laughs> and um, no nutrient exists in a vacuum in nature or, in a, or should exist in a vacuum in our diets. And so there will be some piece of research that comes out about one specific nutrient, uh, like vitamin D, and there will be a lot of hype attached to it. Now, I'm personally thrilled to see uh, positive attention being given to something that was so treated like, a, like practically like a toxic compound for a really long time. But the problem is, is that what you have now are people running around popping vitamin D pills, not taking into account uh, the way vitamin D normally appears in nature, complexed with other uh, fat-soluble nutrients, and um, and particularly vitamin A. If people aren't aware that for every receptor and every cell in your body for vitamin D, there are two receptors for vitamin A, and the, those two nutrients do need to be in some sort of relative balance with each other in order to function properly. And if you have too much D, then then um, then an A deficiency is going to be more pronounced and D may become more toxic at lower levels. And the opposite is true. People who are out there guzzling cod liver oil thinking that they're getting enough vitamin D from that, which they almost always aren't, are going to find that they have disproportionately high uh, and I do like cod liver oil, by the way, as a supplement, but but they'll get disproportionately high vitamin A levels, um, which will exacerbate a D deficiency and make vitamin A potentially more toxic at lower levels. It's almost better to have too much of both or not enough of both than a real uh, significant imbalance of both. And then, of course, the other problem is that people just assume if a little is good, more is better, and what I'm starting to see for the first time now, because I do a lot of uh, functional blood chemistry analysis, I look at blood chems a lot, um, and up until recently I never found a single person who was actually sufficient for vitamin D other than yours truly. Um, most people are pretty severely deficient, and that's still true, but I'm starting now to see people who um, are showing up with excessive uh, levels of vitamin D because they're popping vitamin D pills like there's no tomorrow thinking that that's good for them and uh, not paying attention to where those levels are. And as we know, D will build up in your system. And um, and in the summertime, it's just probably, uh, I mean, unless you you work in a dark basement, you never get outside. A dwarf. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah you got to, you know, it's important with vitamin D. You got to test. You got to know where those levels are at, and and you've got to take other nutrients into account. And uh, I, you know, there was all that hype about chromium years ago, and so people were popping chromium pills, uh, thinking that they were going to, you know, and and as many as they could down, um, to thinking that it was a big weight loss uh, pill, and. You know, that's what happens, and, and then the supplement industry takes advantage of these studies, and they hype a single nutrient, and then people start taking imbalanced levels of those nutrients, and again, not paying attention to um, 
uh, you know, basically to nature. You know, it's, it's, um, it, shows how, it shows how little I mean, the media, you know, people in general understand the purpose of science. Yes. You know, because I would say, you know, from a biochemist's point of view, well, you know, we, we, we like, you know, if we find out there's some, you know, some factor we need, it's good to take a reductionist point of view and study and see what it, how it works. You know, in, in, co- you know, in combination with, you look for cofactors, you're know, trying to understand the biochemical pathways, which is useful. Right. But that's not necessarily saying that, well, now I understand the biochemical pathways, I necessarily can go back and start fixing people by giving a sole thing. I'm mean, the Western medicine point of view. Yeah. Because cause that's done through whole foods. Right. Right. I mean, the evolutionary is done from what's locally grown, you know, locally caught. And, uh, you know, it's really, I find it really distasteful that, you know, industry and a lot of scientists, you know, misunderstand what their purpose was, which is to understand how something works. So if there's a disease or there truly is some problem, at least we have some idea, well, maybe it has something to do with vitamin D, plus yeah. some other things, but at least we can start looking for, you know, some treatments or something. Mm-hmm. But that's nothing to do with what you should be eating. You know, you're not supposed to go out there and buy 10,000 supplements instead of having natural food, I don't think. Right. Supplements are just that. They're designed to be supplements. In other words, adjunct to a foundationally healthy diet. And if people think they can do it with supplements, they're deluding themselves. Now, mind you, I think that there are certain supplements that have unfortunately become necessary for probably most of us. You know, omega-3s are largely not in the food supply anymore. A lot of trace minerals are simply missing from our soils. Um, you know, there are certain things that it makes sense um, to supplement with, but you don't have to go broke doing it. And so once you've taken care of your foundations, you know, if there's, you know, you, 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 de- you deal with the foundations and then you see what's left over. And, um, and if you want to augment some aspect of your health or you want to address some particularly acute condition or something like that, then supplements can be supplementally helpful, but they don't take the place ever um, of a healthy diet. Or going outside exercising or working outside or yeah, right. going on vacation, <laughs> going to do meditation. But actually, right. just since we have to be on, on, on supplements, um, uh, well, first, we're talking uh, with a great book, Primal Body, Primal Mind. You can go to www.primalbody-primalmind.com uh, by Nora Gagaldis. Did I say it right again? Yeah, you. Yep, pretty, pretty good. It's three syllables. It's not so easy for me. Yep, nine letters, three syllables. Two thousand nine version, and also I should mention that she is also a host on Health Voice America. You still are. Yes. Yes. So oh yes. She and I are related, so to speak. Yes. Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio on Voice America's, uh, you know, health and wellness channel, and uh, I'm on at uh, Pacific Time uh, Wednesday mornings at ten o'clock a.m. So. That's a good time for everybody. That's your picture is really nice, by the way. Hey, thanks. Looks like a really friendly lady. Yeah, they got my good on that one. Yeah. Part of the friendly lady. So one thing is just, you know, this is a really good book. Uh, you know, I do talk to a lot of authors. But some of them have good books. Some of them have really great books that put things in perspective in a way that's intelligent but understandable. At least gives us a base. So you need to read her book. Also, too, uh, Jacob Tattlebaum at Vitality101.com is a good friend of mine. It's on the show a lot usually about every quarter, and we talk about uh, holistic medicine and things. And, he, and if you go to the site, um, he actually has gone a lot of years going through what he thinks are good supplements. And he's not an overdoer kind of guy. He doesn't blast you. In fact, he gives less than some people think. And uh, a lot of his products, he doesn't get any money from his products because he just makes them right. up, as you know. But it's a good place to go. And sometimes I'm a shop will carry, like, integrative health products. But he has a good 
really good uh, vitamin D and general um, complex, which I think is a safe thing to take for everybody. You're not going to overdo yourself. Right, right. And it's pretty well balanced. So uh, it's good to have, I think, some supplements. But yeah, I, I do agree. And I, and I list a number of, um, I, I provide hey, sort of an abbreviated supplement <laughs> guide in, in, in my book that if people are wanting to take that extra step or they're interested well, here are some things to think about, um, and that's you know here are certain supplements you can you know consider what this does. If this sounds like something that would be right for you, then this is something to go out and look for. I actually don't I don't consider myself a supplement huckster. I don't really I don't I, I, I make them available in my practice, but I don't necessarily push them in my practice, um, and um, I don't you know I'm not selling them online or anything. Um, but there are certain things I think that you can that can be extremely useful. Um, sometimes, but again, I think you can do at least uh, seventy or eighty percent of it just simply with a quality nutrient dense diet. And of course, quality diet is the big question: what does constitute a healthy diet? And there's been no more complicated question probably in in modern history. I mean, it, once upon a time. It wasn't anything anybody worried about. It was a, a given. That's <laughs> all you had to eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's what you, well, you had to eat in your natural environment. You know, you had a loincloth and a spear, and, <laughs> yeah. and you'd go wandering around, and you, you went after what looked like food. Um, and, of course, for all but 5 or 10% of the last 500,000 years, a good part of the globe has been locked in ice age. Right. And, and uh, even areas that were more temperate during that time period, like Africa, were essentially being ripped apart by, by drought and wildfires during that same historical time period. So, um, you know, meat and fat have been um, tremendously important to us. We're really extraordinarily well-adapted to those foods, and in fact, there are a number of nutrients that really uh, can only be effectively gotten uh, for us from those foods. And um, so, diets that tend to exclude them, you know, um, you know, are source of are source of concern. As you bring up a good point, though, Doctor Price mentioned. I think it's been a long time since I read his stuff, but. Um... He's kind of, you know, when Rome do like the Romans do. But actually, uh, yeah, he, he advised that uh, when you move to some area of the world, if the equator or farther north, I mean, it really does help to get go back historically and get an idea, you know, the kinds of food people ate. Yes. And try to adapt your diet to the more natural things. And it does, you know, it doesn't mean it's all I had was salmon. You can't eat swordfish. Right. Know, or something else. But right. we do our best. Whatever the natural diet for that kind of geographical area is, it's still right. the naturally best diet for that geographical area. And it's funny how people don't don't even eat seasonally anymore because you know, food's imported. Well, we don't have to. Yeah, we can get our asparagus from Peru in February, you know. And that's... that's we may not need asparagus in February. You know, we <laughs> need the nutrients in uh, something else in February. Right, right. And then there is that whole eating seasonally, eating locally, um, that I think there's a tremendous validity to. Of course... Now, somebody who uh, maybe was born and grew up in the Pacific or in in the Pacific Northwest is going to perhaps have um, may they may have adapted to a different um, number of vitamin D receptors, for instance, than somebody who grew up in Arizona. And uh, so, we need to take our environment to some degree um, into account uh, when you know. Sometimes people will uh, you know move up here. Um, you know, from from sunny locations, and they end up having a much harder time in the winter right. than somebody who, say, you know, was born and you know, born and bred here in Oregon, and 
for them, vitamin D might getting adequate vitamin D might be a lot more challenging. Uh, for instance, because uh, the number of receptors that they, uh, you know, that that they uh, came up here with for vitamin D. So, you know, taking those things into account, uh, you know, the, the, your your ancestral diets. If your ancestors came from the Celtic Isles, for instance, you're Irish or Scottish or something like that, you're going to probably have a higher requirement for omega-3, you know, preformed omega-3 fatty acids, you may completely lack this delta-60 saturase enzyme that allows you to make use of plant-based omega-3s. Um, and, uh, you know, you may do better on a diet that's higher in, in fish and, um, you know, grass-fed meats and things like that uh, versus somebody who came from perhaps a more tropical uh, location who... Um, you know, may do better on a high, slightly higher percentage of uh, plant-based foods and that kind of thing. It's 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 stuff to take into account. But of course, there are, most people nowadays um, are really not of a pure ethnic background. You end up ha- having to take a kind of um, a variety of your ancestors into account when trying to figure this out. And so again, there kind of lies my my argument to go as far back along evolutionary lines as as we can, and just consider that we're we're all uh, all of us, regardless of our ethnic background, regardless of our ideologies, we're all at least ninety nine point nine nine percent hunter gatherers, and we're all fundamentally creatures of the ice age. And the degree to which we can take that into account when we make our dietary selections, I think, is the degree to which we're likely to fare better, be healthier, live longer. Well, and the living longer thing, that's a whole other piece that I talk about in my book because there kind of isn't really a particularly natural model for living longer. I mean, nature doesn't necessarily give a rat's patootie if we live a long, healthy, post-reproductive life or not. That's just not what nature's about. Nature's about, you know, the, you know, the, the perpetuation of life in general, not necessarily caring so much about us as individuals. So if we're interested in prolonging the quality and quantity of our lives, I think that we kind of have to move beyond that that primitive model a tiny little bit and take a look at what's happening in longevity science. And, of course, I cover that quite a bit in my book, and what I do is I sort of hybridize this evolutionary approach to things, which I think is a, is a very, very important. It's just the first and foremost foundation so looking at what these selective pressures were, what what nutrients that uh, we would have evolved um, consuming and how that established our nutritional requirements. But then to try to move beyond that, we kind of have to look a little bit at where nature's loopholes are in the design. Um, and we know from, you know, and I, from human longevity research uh, for over the, about the last 75 or, or more years that they found pretty consistently now over 75 years' worth of research that that something called caloric restriction seemed to have a universal impact of extending normal healthy lifespan. But um, but they didn't know why that was. Uh, and it was sort of the holy grail, if you will, of longevity research to figure out why that was. Because it seems counterintuitive. Why would restricting nutrient intake for some reason help something live longer? That just doesn't seem to make sense. They assumed it was caloric restriction in general. They didn't really have the idea that it had to do with any one particular macronutrient. Right. But, you know, thanks to Cynthia Kenyon's work in the mid-1990s 
and the discovery of that DAF2 gene that they found, uh, you know, this this little worm she was studying um, developed this genetic mutation, and normally genetic mutations aren't a very friendly thing. They either kill or really compromise us. And, and in this particular case, it more than doubled the lifespan of this tiny little worm. And they they all sat forward in their chairs and said, what the heck was that gene? Spent another couple of years figuring it out and discovered, wow, this gene encodes an insulin receptor. <laughs> and figured out that, that insulin, not being a blood sugar hormone, actually is responsible for determining how long we live. And um, so the less insulin we produce over the course of our lifetimes, the longer we live and the healthier we are. And uh, if caloric restriction by its very nature is going to restrict the production of insulin. And, and so, you know, and of course carbohydrates are the, because, you know, of the three major macronutrients, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, the one for which there's really no human dietary requirement per se is carbohydrate. In my mind, because, uh, because of that, Virtually every molecule of carbohydrate we take into our bodies is more or less considered excess. Um, and so insulin is more likely to react to the presence of carbohydrate than it is either proteins or fat, which largely go to structure prior to going to energy. And, um, and so limiting or eliminating to the extent possible um, anything that provokes insulin is, you know, from a longevity standpoint, um, an, an important thing to do. And um, there are also some recent uh, there's also some recent research sort of uncovering this new metabolic pathway called mTOR, a little M capital T O R, which is apparently a protein sensor that we never used to know was there. Um, and when we consume protein in excess of what we need for our own maintenance and repair, it, it's sort of related to the insulin pathway. It upregulates things like cellular proliferation, and it um, lessens our own maintenance and repair and puts the energy instead toward reproduction. But if we can downregulate that pathway by somewhat limiting, just moderating our protein intake to what we absolutely need for our maintenance and repair, then instead what we're doing is we're upregulating maintenance and repair, and we're and it's preserving us instead of the out with the old, in with the new that comes with upregulating reproductive pathways. So... Um, there's a lot of really exciting longevity research that can allow us to adapt some of these uh, you know, primitive concepts into a diet that is going to help us live longer, is actually a lot more economically sustainable because this, this way of eating that I, that I talk about in my book is actually the least expensive way for anybody to eat optimally well in existence anywhere. What you're basically doing is satisfying your appetite with fat, which is the only macronutrient that can truly satisfy appetite. We're not satisfied by bulk. We're satisfied by fat. And um, and in doing that, it ends up being somewhat calorically uh, more limited than a standard American diet, but it's not a calorie-counting diet at all. You eat to satisfaction, but you're just you just pay attention to where... Your macronutrients are coming from. So, well, as you said, you were a, ho- a, co- a coach too on your own show. You know what the music means. I right. certainly do. End of the all um, too well <laughs> show. But uh, Nora, tell us again uh, where people go to listen to your show because I would recommend going to listen to people's shows. I mean, get her book. 
But yeah, absolutely. Get my book, by all means. Um, I mean, we, we barely even scratched the surface of yeah. the tip of the iceberg on, uh, on the show. Page. <laughs> but yes, it's, you can go to primalbody-primalmind.com and find my book there. And uh, you can listen to my show, Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio, on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel on Wednesdays at uh, 10 o'clock Pacific, and that would be noon central. Um, or 1 p.m. Eastern. Or 1 p.m. Eastern, yes, as it were. And, and uh, by all means, uh, you know, uh, continue staying tuned to Michael Kell's show, too. He's doing thank some you. great stuff here. Thank you, thank you. Well, you take care, and uh, I'm going to have to listen to your show one day. Yeah, that would be great. Get some find some time. But uh, the shows, shows are always archived for people out there that haven't been there. Yes, well, they obviously, are. they're coming to Voice America because they're here right now. But the shows are always archived on, on the health channel, so you can go back and listen to it at your own leisure and stop and think about it. So there's some advantage to the archives, I think. Well, Nora, thank you very much. I, I really like your book. Thanks. I recommend everybody get her book. She's a, obviously you're a nice lady and you're a smart lady, and uh, you help a lot of people, so I like that. Well, thank you, Michael. I really appreciate you having me on. I, uh, My pleasure. It's been it's been great. Thank you. You be. Okay. Uh, when I come out to Portland some days, because I have to come out there occasionally. I'm gonna, By all means, I'll yeah. Again. Let's let's uh, you know let's we'll do something, something good, something primal. <laughs> okay. Thank you, dear. Okay. Bye. Thanks, Michael. Take care. Thank you for joining Dr. Michael John Kell on Mind, Brain, and Body. Please tune in next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Mind, Brain, and Body right here on Voice America Health and Wellness. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 